Welcome to episode 269 with my guest Guy Branham. Today's episode is sponsored by Penzu, your personal journal in the cloud. Penzu is where millions of people keep their most private thoughts all locked up with a secret password. Go to penzu.com, that's spelled P-E-N-Z-U. Do it right now and sign up for a free account. And for extra security and fun customizations, go to penzu.com slash GoPro. Do it on your computer and use the promo code MENTAL for five bucks off your Pro or Pro Plus subscription. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, MetalPod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Uh, yeah, go to uh, go to our website. You can uh, browse the forum. Uh, you can join the forum and post. There's a gazillion different topics that people are talking about in there. Um, you can read blogs uh, on our homepage, guest blogs. Um, you can fill out a survey. Maybe we'll read it on the show. Um, you can buy merchandise, all kinds of stuff. So go check it out, mentalpod.com. Um, what did I want to tell you? I think I just get into the surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a, a teenage girl who calls herself uh, both poles. And about her depression, she writes, my depression doesn't make me suicidal, but if I started drowning, I would not care enough to swim. Uh, boy, I think a lot of us get that one. About her anxiety, my anxiety inspires me the way a wolf inspires a rabbit. That is great. Not great that you have it, but great uh, great way of shut up, Paul. Uh, when do we make it? Uh, two minutes and one second in, and the flagellating is beginning. This is uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Yikes versus Nice about her depression. There's a vacuum attached to all my pores, sucking all the energy and will to live out of me, leaving me hollow. About having fibromyalgia, she writes, being at a five-hour work shift and suddenly feeling like I was just in a street fight and badly lost. Thinking about asking someone to bring my cane to my job because I left it behind thinking I wouldn't need it, but deciding I can't deal with getting the side-eye from people who think I'm a healthy young person faking an injury. Oh, that has to be awful. The mind fuck on top of the uh, the body stuff. Uh uh, and then this is uh, filled out by uh, Sarah Young, and she writes ab- about her codependency, constantly trying not to piss off the people I hate the most. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job... Mental illness. ...is convincing myself... I'm so alone. ...why... Hypervigilance. ...I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. 
I'm here with Guy Branham, who, uh, and we're going this is uh, Guy Branham 2.0. We, uh, did a really fun live podcast in Oakland a couple of months ago, but there was a problem with the audio and about half of it was unusable. So Guy is kind enough to come back and uh, and redo it for me. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me again, Paul. And I have to tell you, when I was there, I was like, oh my God, I'm sharing so much of myself in front of these strangers. I wish I had just done it in... Paul's office, and now that we are just in Paul's podcasting studio, I'm like, oh god, I wish I had the safety and comfort of audience <laughs> members to make everything more okay by laughing at them jokes. Uh, it was a nice blend of uh, of comedy and vulnerability. I mean, you you uh, did not disappoint in what I look for in a guest for uh, a live a live recording. Um, what? What are the anxieties that are coming up for you right now? Well, it is just, as a comic, you're always uncertain about letting the pathos take control. I mean, like with my comedy persona, like having the pathos be too much and making an audience uncomfortable is part of the problem. Like Karen Kilgariff once said, after we watched somebody who kind of did that, she's like, no, you have to make it okay for them. And you have to make what okay? The pathos? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that you have to, I think part, part of what I like about comedy is you share your truth, but you also keep it balanced in such a way that people remember it's fine and you get through the day and you haven't committed suicide yet. And like, there's a world full of flowers and butterscotch. And so it's all going to be okay. I think that's our job. And like that can be hard when you don't have an audience to make laugh, to, to keep that in balance. And especially with the, with the nature of this show. And Mm -hmm. as we were just discussing, uh, between, (laughs) between doing the show and me being here, my dad died and so, and how that, long, how long ago did he did he pass away? Because we recorded what two and a half months ago. Oh, I don't. Think Not it, even that. No, it was month one ago? month ago. It was the last weekend of, uh, or second to last weekend of January, and then he died on February third. So about a week and a half later, um, and that was about two weeks ago. Wow. Yeah, as I said to you, coming up the stairs. I'm so sorry. I I can't imagine. Well, t- tell us what what's going through your head and your heart. And Well, part of it is the interesting project of negotiating the death of somebody who I had already kind of had to l- limit my relationship with, you know? Um, after I came out, my parents were very resolute about their lack of interest or capacity to sort of like be invested in or involved in my life. Essentially, they just can't talk about or deal with essentially any of the adult parts of my life because those are either frivolous Los Angeles things um, or gay things and things that they don't understand. Um, And so that was very hurt. Like that tore me apart for all of the time that I was trying to sort of like maintain this is my family like they should love me and i kind of had to go through a process of all right if they do not care that much about me 
I will, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to be that invested in some, in somebody who does not like or appreciate you. Hallmark should make a card that announces you're demoting somebody from family to acquaintance. And it's, it's so weird and hard because when I say it, it's hard to love somebody like that, I don't mean I rapidly stopped loving someone like that. I mean, I spent decades trying to figure out how that would work. Would it be fair to say that you got to a point where you had to protect yourself from just constantly being let down or injured yeah. on a certain... Yeah, um, and they just... I think one of the things that's really interesting about my parents is that they cannot understand that they are hurting me. Like, they don't... They are so committed to the idea of themselves as good parents that they cannot understand it as being hurtful. Um, to, like... They have barely visited me in Los Angeles, and when they did, they they like won't come into my apartment because it it scares them. Uh, they, you know, as, as I said before, the first time I did comedy on television, they watched it with the sound off, like which is they, which is such an awful moment. I right. mean, that is, yeah. Um, and there, I had one good thing with my dad before he lived, uh, before he died. Um, he. I was like going to do my podcast, Pop Rocket on Maximum Fun. Please listen and enjoy. It's a panel of people who talk about pop culture. Paul's done it. Um, it's very fun. Thanks. Um, but my, uh, I, I was calling to talk to my niece, and he was making like obligatory small talk with me. And he's, he's, he said, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to my podcast. And he's like, no, your podcast, what's that? And I was like... I've been doing this for a year. We've told you about it many times before. Like, let's just not do this. <laughs> and like, he listened to my podcast once before he died. And that really was like a good uptick for us. Um, and so I have been focusing on that and focusing on, do you think your podcast might've killed him? <laughs> no. I mean, if you'd listened to my album, that might've killed him. <laughs> like that's, uh, very reasonable. One of the best things, uh, one of the best things that's happened since um, my dad died. This is in an awfulsome way, in a terrible, awfulsome way. But um, there's been so much of a mess between my mom and my sister as two women with no capacity for boundaries. Um, but as they were having a meltdown fight, they were arguing about something. Uh, and I was just remaining passive as is my way. Um, unlike when I was nine, I did not have a fantasy book in front of me, but I was still, you know, enacting dramas of the past. Um, and they were both saying something that was clearly reflective of the fact that they had not listened to my comedy album, <laughs> that like, there was just a basic fact about me that they didn't know because neither of them particularly pay attention to me because like, they think of me as a physical object. I don't know. Um, do, you, do you think your being gay is so scary to them that they just only open certain doors that they know are safe in your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, I mean, being gay is a simple label to put on it, but I really think it is so many things more than that. Like, it is about me having 
gone to college. It is about me having a job that is fun. Like it is about me not having an unwanted pregnancy that then defines my economic choices for the rest of my life. Like those are things that they understand. Um, you know, if I had emotional rhythms that rested on alcoholic outbursts, everyone in my family would be so much more comfortable with it because it would make sense to them. <laughs> it would be familiar. Um, so they're terrified by the unfamiliar. It's, it doesn't come from a place of malice. Uh, yeah. I mean, is that fair? But I think, but how can you ever look at it like that? How can you ever look at it like that when you have this person who my mom, I mean, who is just feels feels like she can't do any of the substantive things it takes to love me, to love me as anything other than like a, f a physical object. If that makes any sense to you, oh, to, to me, right? <laughs> yes. yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. Like, um, it is like w weird, um, and it's it, it's crushing when you realize that you are an object to yeah. a parent. When you realize I'm not truly being seen and heard, and then the boundaries I'm trying trying to set are just going in one ear and the uh, and out the other. Yeah, I mean, my my mom wants me to be in the room where she can see me, and she wants to feed me and she wants to clothe me. Um, the notion of me having control over my own body is a little bit upsetting to her. Like even when I was home for my, my dad, he didn't have a funeral cause my mom has hardcore social anxiety and does not want to see people. Um, uh, like even the sort of like, please don't wash my clothes. Um, she ended up just doing it anyway, even though we've had these fights a thousand times, they don't make sense to her. Um, and so she's incapable of accepting someone else's point of view on something. Um, I never thought about it that way, Paul, but that defines her as a human being. My mom doesn't talk to anybody except for my niece who she is raising. Um, she has kind of undone relationships in her life because she doesn't want to have to deal with other people's perspectives. Um, and it's weird because I love the hell out of her and I wouldn't be the person I was if it wasn't for her. Like she was the person who gave me the skill set to be able to have a life different from the other people in my town. And so I like, <laughs> I owe all of that to her and I love, I love her so much, but she cannot accept buddy, a, a different view. Buddy, you, you have just described my relationship with my mom really? and, and, and it's yeah. where I'm at right now and that I can't have contact with her and it kills me. It mm -hmm. kills me yeah. because there are so many things I'm reminded of every day that she introduced me to, uh, you know, great jazz singers. Um, she she educated me at an early age uh, to let me know that, that we experienced privilege and there are a lot of people in the world that don't. Yeah. You know, she would have. I remember one Christmas we had uh, Nigerian immigrants spend Christmas with us. We yeah. would have kids from the boys' home spend Christmas with us. Um, 
there was she was uh, in many ways a rebel from in, in the conservative um kind of uh, slightly racist to pretty racist place where where I grew up and so I have a place in my heart for all of those parts of her but there's this other part that cannot stop infantilizing yes yes uh the most dazzling wonderful person you know until you decide to be an adult um and it was yeah, I should not talk anymore about fights that were had in the past month. Um, but my, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, the, the, the image what that you're I, saying is very yeah. valid to things that just happened. The image that I have of, of my mom is a cactus that wants a hug. That's it. It's so hard because my mom is this like deeply, deeply loving person who has, who who wants to give of herself, wants so hard to give of herself, uh, but kind of doesn't understand other people. The thing she said to me in the past couple of days that was really like, and it's something she's told me since childhood, is she told me, oh, but this phrasing was particularly good. She um, she said that no one will ever love you as much as I loved you, and she, she said that, and then she said, except maybe that little girl, meaning my niece, maybe she will. And I I had to say to her, um, that's not a nice thing to say to a person. What you're saying there is the love that I've given you is, and and not the love she currently experiences for me, but the love she had for me in the past is the best you're going to get. And it really was just so reflective of not being able to like (laughs) understand that I have an adult life or understand that she should be wanting or thinking about, me having richness or other people in my life now. And you're like, well, guy, why do you need to fight with this poor old woman who just lost her husband about that? But the thing is, is like, it is so arrogant to, to say, I know what the limits of your lovability are. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a horrible thing to say, but Paul, she is also so still invested in, in knowing me. Cause I'm one of the people she knows best and she doesn't know me that well anymore. You know, like, um, you, you, you know, my, my theory, and, and I hope I'm not cutting you off, but I, I no. just have to share this theory. I think there are parents who become so enamored with the feelings they get from their child when they have autonomy over their child, when that child yeah. is a small age, they almost become addicted to that. So then the child in their mind becomes this thing that they get emotions from that fill an emptiness within within them. And they have never consciously made the decision for that child to become an adult and individuate. Um. That is fascinating. Seeing it as a cycle of addiction is interesting just because um, my mom comes from a ridiculously addictive family and I, you know, I, I think she could never possibly see it that way, but you know, she doesn't, she's good at not saying things other people's ways. She, I mean, f- for, has she ever said the word gay in front of you? Um, she hates saying it. Sometimes she, she will, but it is only, it takes a sputter and a start and then get like, it has to have this tone or tinge to it that it is something I have insisted on bringing up. Like she doesn't see why it has to be a problem. If I just never discussed it or never had it influence or impact my life in any way, that would be great. The thing is, is like, um, 
like my a, a huge part of my issue with my parents i mean it it is that sort of like lack of ability to respect my adulthood or individuation um but it's also the fact that like being raised as a gay kid in america is a traumatizing experience and we all want to behave like gay guys come out when they're 23 and they do it in college and then they're fine and stylish and there's never a problem again. And then they're just kind of normal as much as the law allows them to be normal now. Um, but that's not true. The thing is, is that you grow up with a fucked up sense of your own identity. You don't have like, you don't have experiences in the way that other people do. You have them surrounded by social and legal stigma and that's hard. And my parents, they just never, I, I think, and the thing is, is there's something sweet about the fact that I think as people who for my hometown worked very hard and did a good job of monetarily providing for us, like most people in my shitty trash town did not have parents who even could like pay the rent on a regular basis or make sure that they had dental care. And my parents did all of that stuff. Yuba, Yuba City? Yuba City. Well, just outside California. of Yuba City. Okay. Um, Couldn't make it big time to Yuba City, could you? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you were just outside of it. Oh, yes. Exactly. Exactly. People from the city were full of themselves. My mom wouldn't let me go to Yuba City High School because she was scared of it being too uh, urban. Uh, and really? Da- and dangerous. Seriously? Yeah. I was like, hey, they have calculus and four years of Spanish and I would like to go to a good college. So let me go to Yuba city high school. And she was like, no, you'll go to Sutter high school uh, that has 300 students. And there you will be safe. My mom has uh, an obsession with uh, a friend of mine as I was sort of like laying out all of the shit that had gone down after my dad's death. She noted my mom. She was like, that sounds kind of OCD-ish. Like my mom has this obsession with like dangers and stuff that are to her very realistic to her, very realistic. And she does not want to talk to anybody who is going to tell her that those are unrealistic or point out the more realistic problems that she's completely ignoring. That's such a profound statement. And I think it's so widespread. Yeah. So widespread. I feel like this feels like, uh, Second podcast. I feel uncomfortable for um, how much I'm just delving into um, essentially complaining about my parents. One of them is dead. Uh, <laughs> what? Share some beautiful moments that you had with your parents. Okay. Um, we are now in a small room. Um, there's very much an office space. Um, but the walls have kind of a gentle texturing to them. Um, my dad was a construction worker all of, for all of the time that I lived at home. Um, and then he later eventually got sort of like paperworky jobs about construction. Mm -hmm. But, um, like, even though I hated going with him to construction jobs, I went every summer between when I was like, 12 until I graduated from college. I had to go and work with him. Um, but like, I appreciate a good texture job. Like I appreciate a good texture job when I see a concrete slab that was 
poured improperly so that it is having a lot of cracking. I'm aware of that. Um, and you know, I just, I had a weird moment, like a couple of days after he died when I was like, he could fix anything. Like he, I mean, he was like just the way that we as children were able to, cause my dad's a Gentile. My mom was Jewish. Um, but just have that basic kind of assumption that like, oh, it broke. We'll take it to Dan. He'll there be m- able to fix this. There must have been a certain safety in having a dad like that. A feeling of. Absolutely. I mean, I like I had this weird moment of of being at home with my mom and my niece and realizing if I was my niece's age, 14, and it was nighttime and my dad wasn't home. I would have felt less safe, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a, in a, in a town where people are kind of like stealing stuff from the back of your truck a lot and, uh, bats fly into windows and <laughs> stuff like that. Like having a dude who was like good at that kind of stuff, um, was nice. Um, any memories of moments between you and him? Um, there was a really lovely moment when, um, I was at like a, a, it was in a, it was a conference for the future business leaders in America. And I had like gotten really involved in it because it was a way that you could like compete academically against kids from other schools. And I was obsessed with that because I was like, I'm in this fucking backwater. I'm never going like when I get to college, I'm not going to know what I'm up against. Like, I I just have this deep need to be like, there are people out there who are going to real schools. Let me see what's going on here. Um, so I like ran for a bunch of offices and I was at the like, um, national convention in LA and my advisor and this kid who she liked more than me because his parents were richer and she didn't like Jews. Um, she and a bunch of other like, (laughs) advisors and stuff were going to medieval times and he like was very he he was very aware that i would have really liked that and so he who was never one to sort of like spend money irresponsibly was like fuck this and it was like 6 30 p.m and we went to disneyland and paid full admission and like just had a good time the two of us um in a way that felt like decadent and delightful um and even that, that story is so informed by the fact that I like, I spent almost every day, every weekend in his shop with him doing these stupid, like I, <laughs> I hated being out there in a shop. I hated like all of the like construction stuff and all of that. But like, we did spend so much time just talking and it's weird. Cause you're like a kid. And you don't have the skills to, you don't have the skills to analyze somebody else's psychology. You don't have, and sort of, I I probably knew him better than anybody, you know, like this person who I felt like hated me, did not like me. Hated all of you or just part of you? Constantly judging me like constant visceral you're doing it wrong like every summer that i was at a construction site there was never a moment that i wasn't doing it wrong uh the things that i was good at he didn't understand and thought i was arrogant and weird for being good at them uh he 
liked that I was big, but got angry at me for not being better at football. Like, um, he was never not nitpicking me. Um, and there was none of that male collegiality that I see from like good brother relationships or good, like father son relationships. We had so little of that. We had so little of that. Um, but in, in ways I knew him very well. My sister understands him better. My sister intuitively understands what he would want and stuff because he always seemed so alien to me. So like, I know what his stories were, but I do not viscerally understand whether he wants to take the truck or not. You know? <laughs> wow. So much stuff to talk about. And I don't even know where to. Yeah, it's weird. We just kind of go. Give me, give me some uh, beautiful moments that you that you had with your mom. Oh, um, see, in a world of sad, uneducated people getting through their lives and drinking too much beer or doing cocaine or eventually doing meth to make it through. My mom was the one person I knew who like understood it's your job to make your own good time. Like, you know, one day my dad was like coming home late from work and she was bored and she was like, let's make tapioca. I've never made it before. And we, we made tapioca from scratch together. Um, she would, I mean, and did you enjoy that? It was great. Like we, one day she just like was making a cake and just like riffed at me the entire time she was making a cake about, um, her boyfriend named Vlad, who was a Russian boy scout. Like she was, she is, she was just making this stuff up being silly. Yeah. I mean, she was like super funny. She was somebody, you know, she, like, when I was 17, she was like, you know, oh, you have to watch The Graduate. Watch The Graduate. Like, she was... Like... She had an inner life. She was maybe the only person I was dealing with on a regular basis who wasn't, like, a teacher or something. It sounds like she understood your... um intellectual life more than your yeah father and and that there was a connection there because she appreciated art yeah um and that made me just think she was the best and so it, it is one of the things that makes it really hard about the fact that she has just um you know resigned herself to a relationship with me that is about buying me very cheap clothes that I don't want or need and a bunch of old deodorant, like always trying to give me old deodorant and trying to feed me while I'm home. Like she just wants to know that I'm physically alive. It's weird. And she's going to die one day too. So should I really be, um, harping on these bad things or should I be trying to sort of like build any bridges that I can't, I don't know. I don't know because 
you know, I, I feel like the ball is in her court. You know, if it was, if she disagreed with the school that you went to or felt like the profession you were in was beneath you, you know, that might be something you could work around. But ignoring your sexuality and your, what it is that you're passionate about and and hearing you know you're a brilliant stand-up comedian and she doesn't even get to experience that she's missing out on hearing you verbalize these great funny thoughts it's that's a huge part of you that she is yeah missing out on like It is as though we just don't talk at all, you know, like there. That doesn't mean that she has to get your humor. Right. But at least listen to it. Don't watch your special with the sound off. That's the that's the part that to me is is so heartbreaking. It's like I understand if people are on different wavelengths, but it's your child. At least visit their wavelength. I mean, Part of what's hard about it is me being too aware of how much I have internalized my parents' worldview. And I've, I've spent the past 17 years since, like, came out, had the first Great Depression of my life um, that I understood to be a depression. And sort of, like, started trying to pull myself up and, and figure out where my life was going. And that process is, it brought me to stand-up. It's done so many good things for me. But... I mean, I've still never had a real boyfriend. You know, I still, there are ways that just being the quiet bachelor that I was raised to be are like still in my bones. Mm-hmm. And how old are you? I am 40. Um, and that's terrible. I should be better than that. But also, I'm kind of fine with it because. I mean, there are people who never come out. Uh, I could be a sad lawyer with a boyfriend right now. Would I be happier? Uh, for, uh, the, for, for the listener, Guy was on track to become a lawyer. Was was actually a lawyer. Got your degree and practiced for a little while. Yeah, very briefly. But, um, you know, I've done many wonderful and ridiculous things in my life. And I'm so happy about them. The, the thing is, is I... 17 years, or no, 23 years of being in the closet um, did give me this very, very strong sense of um, thinking that there were things that I would want so bad and never have. And so since then, I have really sort of, between homosexuality and depression, really have come to have a great appreciation for experiencing things that I want to experience, for having lovely times, for... um, going out and getting a little, you know, drunker than a 34-year-old probably should, um, or messing around with a boy who I probably shouldn't on a night when I have to go to work the next day. And I've... And, and for people who uh, don't spend any time around gay men, when he says boy, he doesn't mean a literal boy. No. It's, I it's mean, slang for I mean another... an adult. I mean yes. a goddamn adult. Um but who is uh, adorable and fun. Um, yeah, I, 
heterosexuals are always very um, ready to look at you and say, oh, why aren't you grown up now? Why aren't you in a stable relationship? Why are... Why aren't you sad like me? (laughs) Why aren't you doing what a person's supposed to do? And the thing is, is you told me that I wasn't supposed to do this for all of my life. And then you turned around and legally said, well, I guess you can. Less than a year ago. (laughs) Let's go hurry up. And suddenly that's supposed to change what I expect from myself. And part of it is that weird is trying to understand which of these things are um, a reflection of my oppression. How many of them are my slave mentality and how many of them are just me, you know? And at this point in my life, it is just me. Like I, um, I think I'm just, I like other people. I really enjoy other people. I love, um, understanding how they work, which sounds very clinical and serial killery, but it's just true of who I am. But there is an extent to which with things that echo, like with sort of like being together all the time relationships, I don't understand those. They terrify me. They really terrify what me. What is it about them? that is it feeling smothered or? Yes. It's, com- okay. it's having somebody else's, Crazy. Scoot over just a little sorry. bit. It's having, mm-hmm. it's having somebody else's crazy right there where you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're going to find they're crazy eventually and then you can't get away from it. And I, you know, um, I have a very underground railroad mentality towards my life. And part of it was, I spent so much time, and not just my family, everyone I dealt with in my hometown was essentially constantly saying to me, stop it, you're being weird, or why are you talking about that? No one cares. And my gut... You would be talking about the books that you read, because you... Whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean... You were a huge fan of, of books to escape when you were a kid. Yes. Like, I was deeply aware that there was a gigantic world that was not Yuba city and everybody else kind of paid attention to like pro wrestling and sports kind of. And you know, just the things that like motorsports are very significant where I'm from. And a lot of people care about them a lot or in high school when every boy was talking obsessively about his car stereo. And I was just like, I have, n- I have no interest in this. I don't, and I was a little bit like, I don't think any of you like music that much. Why do you care this much <laughs> about how loud your music is? Um, and my just sort of like basic gut belief that nobody, nobody was interested in what I am, which is strange because like now I live in a happy magic world where my tastes and interests aren't that strange. You know, like gay guys are wonderful. Um, <laughs> like, uh, you know, they all instinctively understand how to spell Diane Carroll's name. Um, <laughs> and it's D-I-A-H-A-N-N. Um, that I, you know, yesterday I spent all day long with four comics playing, not Dungeons and Dragons, but a role-playing game that we have designed and built ourselves. Like, it is wonderful. I live in Elysium. It makes me so happy, but 
you know, I do feel judgmental of myself that I haven't figured out a relationship on top of that. But like, I am physically very, very specific thing. I am intellectually and emotionally a very, very specific thing. And like, you're talking about how people view you. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm six, three, 180 of ripped muscle. I'm sure if that were true, there would be a lot more people who were interested in seeing my true and complete soul. Um, <laughs> but as things are now, like there are some guys who want to have sex with me. I generally, most of them, I don't find deep emotional or intellectual connections with. There are people I have deep emotional, intellectual connections with. We don't have sex and I can't be around somebody. The experience of being around somebody who I am, pretending to like and care about just seems gross to me. Like there was this very nice guy who, um, was, he was an airline pilot and he was so adorable and he like wanted to be boyfriendy to me. And we messed around a couple of times and he was so nice. And he was so like, when are we going to see each other? But like, I, like trying to make conversation with him made me feel so lonely um, that I was like, I need to get away from this. Give me, before we, we wrap up the childhood adolescent stuff, give me a couple of snapshots um, from childhood or adolescence that you think kind of. Oh, um, well, Here's something I didn't remember, but my mom told me while I was home. When I was 18 months old, apparently, my dad was washing his car, and I, like, grabbed a rag and started trying to help. And he thought I scratched his car, and he spanked me. And it was just such a, like, I do not remember it in any way, but it is completely my relationship with my dad in, like, perfect essence. Um, I mean, what are, what are snapshots? Uh, oh, um, here's one. The experience of going into a, um, my parents told me I had to play football. And so I was going to, even though I didn't know what was involved in that. Mm. Um, that guy is a very physically imposing, uh, uh, I am creepily gigantic. And in like in Sutter, like I couldn't show up and be this big and not play football. Um, and I respect that. And it was a valuable experience, but I did not choose to do it. Um, but walking into the men, like a locker room full of 18 year old, like athletic adult men when I was 13 and had just learned. Cause the thing is, is like when you're a little gay kid in my experience, you're weird and wrong. You're socially weird and wrong in a number of ways. And that just feels annoying. And then you turn 12 and your dick betrays you. And you really are the monster that people were saying. Like, um, and, oh, like, um, here's a snapshot before that. I remember driving home with my parents and from school where there had been like a, a talking to about how, I was having social trouble. There was a, a guy who was picking on me. He was calling me gay on the schoolyard, 
But then when we would have conversations about it, we would always say um, that he was calling me fat. I wouldn't say that, but the teacher and everybody would say he's making fun of you for being for being big or for being heavy. But that was not what he was saying. What he was saying is that I was gay, which is just true, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but my parents telling me, well, maybe he wouldn't if you stopped acting like that. Like, um, like you've made a choice to. Well, yeah, and that's the thing about when the way we talk about gay bullying in schools is like. The problem isn't so much a bunch of nine-year-olds talking about a thing that they've kind of learned about. Identifying a thing that exists in the world and has a name. Um, But then when you have an administration and parents who you can't go to to talk to about that, when the... the, Like, a gay nine-year-old knows they're the problem. Like, they're not a victim here. They're the problem. Um... But, yeah, my parents saying, like, maybe if you stopped acting like that. Um, But walking into that locker room when I was 13 years old was the most exciting and terrifying experience of my life. I can't imagine. Because you are simultaneously everything that your dick informed you nine months ago that you really want to look at is now right in front of you. But it is also the first moment of, I am an undercover spy. I I didn't ask for this job, but (laughs) I now have to spend the rest of my life hiding my most basic inclinations from other people. I must be calculating at all times so that no one will ever realize who and what I actually am. Um, And it was so scary and so exciting. And there was just... No one I could talk to about it. There was just nobody. Um, oh. One time I was in college and my dad described me as a fundamentally quiet person. And I was like, what? Like, it was just a weird moment of realizing. Because, like, I was in college. I wasn't thinking about the way I was changing. I was just, like, living a life and kind of being happy for the first time in my life. Um, and when my dad said that, I was like, oh. Yeah, that like that is who I am to you. Like I am just a person quietly reading, um, in a corner. Right. He couldn't he couldn't see you as somebody biding his time. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'll give you one more snapshot. Okay, sure. I'll give you one more snapshot. Um, so you know, on the calendar they have holidays like written at the bottom of dates. And there are holidays that you've heard of, and then there are holidays that you haven't heard of. And I, you know, right after Christmas, right when you've, you know, you've been having some good holidays, on the 6th of of January, there was the word epiphany. And I was like, what is that? What is that? And my mom couldn't answer me. And I just like hunted around and I was obsessed. I was going to figure this out. Um, And I finally, in the school library, like found out that it was you know, um, the holiday of, of sort of revealing the Christ child for the first time, but that it was a word that meant like revealing something, something becoming known. And I just remember being so desperately in love with that word and just thinking like it was the fanciest and best and prettiest thing. And, And like in its way, in that place, it just belonged to me because nobody else knew what it meant. And I did. And so that is... And I would imagine, too, that there was almost a 
unconscious foreshadowing in your mind that you knew you were going to have this moment in your life where maybe you would have an epiphany where where that that sense that you had been holding something down can't last forever i don't know that i had that much hope in my little eight-year-old body you know um it's oh you were eight i was like eight or nine or something like um but but yeah that it was a concept like that that like (laughs) that um it's a word about learning something and it's a learn a, a word about sort of like revealing stuff um you know, like it's 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 always funny with stuff like that because what what got you so choked up just now? Oh, um, it that it is such a, a private story that it really is. There is something so charming to me about how many of my memories from that age really are about a relationship between me and a book or a relationship about between me and a piece of art um, that I think is not uncommon for gay men because you can't, you can't talk about this stuff. And then your point, which I had never really thought about before that it it really is, you know, a a word about revealing yourself and that um, like, I don't know that it ate. I thought, Oh, one day I will get to do that. But I think, oh God, I was like such a sensible eight-year-old. I think I probably thought that would be real nice. Like somebody getting to do that, that would be real nice. Um, and I had, you know, such a rich and active internal life. Um, and I think one of the things I loved about my mom so much was that she got that there was something there to be enjoyed. I think one of the reasons, look, my parents never understood why I don't like coming to my hometown. Um, but it's just so weird to be surrounded by people who don't enjoy me. You know, mm-hmm. like my job is to be enjoyable. Um, my job is to be charming is to be funny. Like I'm, funny professionally and I never really met anybody who found me that funny before I was 17 years old and that is a weird thing like it is a weird thing in a, in a different place um, to to come from but I also like I think it was just that I came from a world where being charming was not something a man was supposed to do a man was supposed to lift and move things of like economically significant enough import that they would make a good union wage, you know, like if you worked hard at construction, you could make good money. Um, if you know, um, if you were fast at picking up nuts, you could make a decent amount of money. That's what a man is supposed to do. And Everything else that like the world and TV was telling me was possible. Everybody was like, no, that's not for us. And people, people kind of don't understand. I don't like 
that life is still like that for white people, <laughs> you know, um, that you can just sort of like be crippled by class. Um, but they were, you know, like our schools were so shitty. Our schools were so shitty because, oh, oh, um, here's a snapshot from childhood. Um, a teacher saying to my mom, like, he, he keeps wanting to know things that they don't need to know. Like, <laughs> why, uh, why does he keep doing that? And I totally had teachers who were, who I, were the opposite of that, who were like, he's the only one who knows that there's a world outside of this place. Um, but the number of teachers I had who were just pissed off at me for not understanding that I was going to be a construction worker. Oh, here's another snapshot. Um, when I was 14 years old, I got a pair of Red Wing boots. And then every two years from then on, I got a pair of Red Wing boots because that is a living. Like, owning Red Wing boots and eventually um, tools It was a profession and a living. And I was supposed to pick that up. The one thing I took of my dad's is I took his nail bags and his, um, and his hammer because that is the trade. He tried so hard to teach me like he did. He tried to teach me a trade. How medieval is that? How sweet is that? He just could never understand me enough to understand how I learn. Like he just never could understand me enough to like, this is a guy who never read a book and I'm a human being who really needs you to like, make a worksheet and a list. Like, could you just give me some vocabulary terms? I'm not going to pick it up from the dudes because the whole time I'm around the dudes, I'm just waiting for them to ask me why I'm acting weird. Like I'm <laughs> just putting together a, uh, you know, a solid set of excuses or shameful looks for why I've been flitting around. Cause I've probably been flitting around. <laughs> Let's talk about, um, what going to college was like. Well, first, first, let's talk about when you decided to to come out and what that was like. All right. Um, so I didn't come out until law school. Um, I had gone to Berkeley because I got a scholarship, and like my mom was freaked out by me going somewhere further away. Um, and it was a good school, and the whole time I was there. I was just terrified. I was terrified of the outside world, but also like just charmed and falling in love with so much of the stuff that I was being exposed to. Um, and I like, you know, <laughs> I got more comfortable with my own complexities. I realized like at this point in time, if you had asked me if I was gay, I still would have said no, because in my head, I was sexually, like, I was turned on by men, which was a mistake because I had been envious of guys and masturbated while being envious of guys. And that had conditioned me that, um, to be attracted to men and stuff like that. All sorts of weird bullshit, half-assed Freudianness, um, that I had filled my head with. Um, but I wasn't gay because I wasn't like those weird people. Um, and like, being at a place that was not constantly attacking me just chilled me out. 
Like it just chilled me out and I would periodically have to go home and deal with my parents, which would be a constant fight. Um, because they didn't understand why I wasn't responsibly hating myself the way that I was supposed to. <laughs> um, and then I went to law school and I did my first year at law school. You were in Minnesota? I was in Minnesota. I was at the University of Minnesota. And I, <laughs> I was so unhappy. I was so unhappy. I knew that this wasn't what I wanted to do. I knew that there were other people there who that was what they wanted to do. And I loved so much of the stuff that I was being exposed to, but I did not have the mindset or mentality of the people who were there to be lawyers. I liked learning about the law. I was not like, I was not cutthroat or single-minded or professional in the way that I was approaching things. And they all were, they were all acculturating themselves to a profession and a way of life. And I was trying and failing. Then a number of things happened in succession. A, I was working my summer job and every day for lunch, I would go off, I would get lunch and there was, there was this used bookstore where I would read books. And there was a book about the Bloomsbury group and uh, it was talking about Ian e. Forster, and it said that Ian e. Forster was 38 before he had sex with a man. And I realized, oh, that's going to be you. That's going to be you. If you just keep going like this, that's going to be you. Um, and, and it never hit me like that. Um, oh, there was also a line about how he left a party to go put his mother to bed. Um, and Virginia Woolf said, uh, the midlife of buggers is a thing not to be contemplated without some degree of horror. And I was like, that's the best fucking line. Also chilling. And I'm living it now. And you guys are <laughs> contemplating it with some degree of horror. Um, and then 4th of July happened and I had a 4th of July party. I watched couples because people had coupled off in law school and we were at, um, the fancy house of a friend whose dad was a lawyer who lived in the Western suburbs of Minneapolis. And I looked at these couples and I said, that will never be you. And that will never be you. Um, and these were some cold, hard facts um, to be bouncing around in Guy Branham's brain. And I also um, was no longer so closely under the thrall of Debbie and Larry Branham. I was making, you know, a significant feature that I don't talk about much is I was making an income so that I could, I knew that the likelihood of them never in any way financially supporting me after that was a possibility. Um, and I was making a decent income from my summer job and that I knew that that would go into being a part-time job while I was in school. And it's like, all right, you'll be all right. Um, and I came out over the phone to them and they told me I was wrong. My mom was like, you've fallen in with a group of people who accept you. You're just, you're sad and lonely and you've fallen in with a group of people who accept you. And so you're saying this and it's like, no, they're not actually being very accepting of me. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is by that point in time, I, I didn't know any homosexuals. Like I, I didn't really know any gay people in Minneapolis and I was very ready to feel rejected by them. I was very ready to feel like I wasn't attractive or valuable enough to matter. And the thing is, is I feel like we give these narratives of gay people being judgmental and terrible. Oh, we, we say them a lot and that's not what 
kids need to hear. And it's also not how gay people are. Like, gay guys can be shallow and terrible, but also fundamentally are super nice. Like, when you get called a faggot, it's not because you're mean to somebody. It's because you're too nice to somebody. That's who we are as a people. The minority that gets slurs for being too nice and accommodating. Um, and yeah, like they were just not cool with it. And what do you remember thinking or feeling? Um, were you surprised by their reaction or had you anticipated it? They reacted exactly the way that I thought they would. But here are the things I will say. I fundamentally thought my mom loved me more than that. Like I thought she would come around I, the only reason I have continued to have fights on the phone with her between 2001 and 2016, or honestly more like 2011 or something, is in my head in 1999 when this happened, I was like, she loves me. She will come around. And it just didn't happen. Um, my dad had always rejected me over almost anything. So like... That was hardly surprising. Um, but there was also just, it is a fundamental and different change beyond that because you're going from a world where you do not talk about most of the things that go in your head to a world where you do have the possibility to say the things that are in your head. And it was delicious, Paul Gilmartin. <laughs> it was, let me tell you, Paul, buttholes are amazing. <laughs> They are charming. Can they be broken down into different categories? <laughs> um, uh, like it would it would take uh, a, a a better taxonomist than me. Okay. Um, but at their best, they are, you know, uh, <laughs> adorable and surrounded by a uh, a a ripened round rump. Dicks are delicious. They take good care of me. But if there is anything I love most about that moment, it is getting to talk about whatever I want to and fundamentally accepting with that the reality of other people's judgment saying, okay, people will judge me. People will have opinions about this. People will not like what I am saying. That's fine. I can weather that. Um, what I get is to not be scared of my own honesty. Like, just being able to say, oh, he's cute, after a lifetime of feeling that, but never being able to say it, was so heady that, like, <laughs> um, I've still not gotten over it. it, it the first time must have just been beyond exhilarating it was it was so exciting and it was so scary um it was the it was the reverse of that moment in the um in the locker room because the fear this time was that they would know the fear this time was that well, everything's out on the table like you're gonna lose your heart to some boy and there's gonna be no protecting yourself and i did oh i did because that's the other thing nobody ever talks to you about is like, you have all of this emotional equipment that you've never used before. 
And like, it's all amped up. Like, I always compare it to being a 13 year old girl, but it's kind of worse because it's been like building up. And also the fact that like a 13 year old girl can be an idiot and everybody gets it. But if a like 23, 24 year old guy in law school is just, you know, rapturous over some barely literate bartender, like nobody's gonna everybody's going to be like, stop, grow up. It's like, I am growing up. Like this is, this is the process of me growing up. Sure. Let's, let's talk about the moment that happened when we did the live podcast. And I asked you about your first sexual experience and somebody gasped. Oh, okay. So I, um, started telling, uh, about not quite a year after I came out, I had sort of like, made some friends and I was learning how to sort of like gay socialize online. Uh, and one day while I was online, this, and I, I had like actively decided that I was going to start, I was going to try to have sex and I had been sort of like hitting on people and it had not been working. And this <clears throat> 17 year old with like braces just came at me hard and was like, you're cute. Let's mess around. Well, when I was, and and you said the age of consent was 17. The age in, of consent was state. 16 in Minnesota. Okay. Um, and when I said that he was 17, a woman in the audience gasped, gasped, judgmentally, um, because 17 is younger than 18, and I was engaging in an act of uh, pedophilia, in her opinion. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, as I said in that moment... Um, at, at that point in time, 16 was the age of consent in Minnesota, but there was a sodomy law on the books. So regardless of what happened, I was going to be having illegal sex. There was no way in me for me in Minnesota to not have illegal sex in 1999 and would not be for the remainder of the time that I lived there. But also I said to her that she doesn't have the right to, uh, place a power over that experience in my life. Cause it's one of the few experiences I got in a way that was relatively normal and relatively good. I lost my virginity to another virgin who is still my friend who was smart and funny and like liked Lord of the Rings too much and like became obsessed, even though he is not Jewish, became obsessed like with 20th century Jewish philosophy over the course of the past 10 years. And it was just like a great person. Like I didn't get normal experiences. I never got holding hands with my junior high boyfriend. I never got being really excited to ask somebody to prom. I never got good or bad of any of those things. I was busy having all of my equipment shut off. So the fact that James Martin was... And at that point in time, I mean, seven years younger than me, but no more experienced than I was. Um, he was the one trying to make it happen. Uh, he was the one who drove over to my house at 2 p.m. on like a Wednesday. Um, and, and, um, was, was the one kind of making it okay for, for me to feel comfortable messing around. Um, but I just told her that she doesn't get, to be judgmental or or define that for me because 
other people have defined enough aspects of my sexual maturation. Uh, and this is one of the few really, really good ones. And I will treasure that. If you guys have any questions about this, you can address them to James Martin of Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> and I think it probably would have been a different story, too, if you had been somebody who was very sexually experienced and there was a huge... Um, gap in world knowledge maybe between you and this look as time has gone on nothing has become clear to me that there then that there is a real distinct bargaining difference in um bargaining power difference in sort of like sex or flirtation or anything between somebody who's a real adult and i would say somebody who's under 24 like um i you know uh Young guys are considered very, very desirable in, in the gay community. And while I was on Chelsea lately, a lot of gay guys watch that. And a lot of, um, you know, a lot of like guys who just graduated from college and go out too much were being very, very charming and making themselves very available to me. And that was, uh, delightful and exciting. You know, everybody 22 and older. Um, but I had to realize like, yeah, I mean, they're idiots. They're idiots. And you understand how the world works. So don't do that because they're idiots. And it's not like being an adult gay guy doesn't just mean that your job is to try to have sex. It also means that your job is to try to help other little gay boys who are learning about who they are along the way. So maybe seeing them as a commodity is not the best of ideas. Um, so I do completely understand and respect that. I mean, even in, I, I guess in that situation of me being 24 and him being 17, he's, he had an additional level of shitheadedness, um, that I didn't understand. I also know that I was fucking terrified the whole time that he was there and I made him show me my, his ID like repeated times to verify that he was over the age of consent. Because let's remember, I was in law school, so A, very aware of what Minnesota's <laughs> uh, age of consent was, because it came up in cases a fair amount. Mm. Um, and also, I understood that I was going to have to fill out character and fitness paperwork in whatever case I applied, or whatever state I applied for the bar in. Uh, and I was going to have to say on my character and fitness statement that I had repeatedly violated Minnesota's sodomy law and I did not want to have uh, anything worse on top of that. <laughs> I think you should include that in your biography. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, let's. One of the things we did in um, the live show was you took some of the surveys. Yes. And uh, do you mind if I ask you some of the questions? And I know you may not remember exactly what you wrote down or how you responded, but... Uh, let's do it. Yeah. Um, let's do the uh, the body shame. Oh. What do you like or dislike about your body and why? Um, I dislike that I am fat. Uh, I dislike that I sweat a lot. Um, my dick is not as long as it should be for my body, and that makes me sad. Uh, I like that I'm strong. Um, I forget what else I said. You know, I mean, as a stand-up, like, th my body is the thing that, like, lets me do what I want to do. And it's easy to think of this as sort of, like, an effort of words or minds. But, like, it really is your body up there. So I like that. 
But also, I mean, I feel like I am taking up too much space constantly. I hear that a lot from from people who either are large or see themselves as large. Yeah. It's hard. And the thing is, is that when you are... And I think it's weird for people to hear me sort of like talk about narratives of marginalization because they think, well, you're a white man, you're fine. And it's like, well, there are also things that you can't see. There are like, though, I mean, us behaving as though homosexuality is completely unregisterable is ridiculous. Everyone can hear my voice right now. Like, uh, it is a siren song of my faggotry. But, um, <laughs> Which was the name of your first album. It was. Uh, no, my album, Effable, is available from uh, A Special Thing Records. But um, uh, uh, when you're constantly aware that you're wrong, you're trying to hide. So it's not like you get to occupy space. And so I think I would have been a very different guy on a football field or whatever, if I had been comfortable with my body and comfortable with its mm. capacity to fill up space and be like, it's Paul, the whole time I was growing up, I was just surrounded by guys who wanted to fight. Like they just wanted to fight all the time and no one could understand why I was so big. And like there was, a, when I was very young, both of my parents were like, this is a danger he'll beat everybody up. He'll be an asshole. He'll beat everybody up. So we have to make him not like that. And then when I was like five, they were kind of like, why don't you want to beat people up? (laughs) Um, And it's just never particular. Like, I just, I don't get it. I would feel so bad about it. Um, But I do like to punch and be punched during sex. Not in like a mean in the face kind of way in a, we are strong on both men in like the chest or sort of like Mm -hmm. slap around kind of way. You know, you said something in in one of the surveys that you took that I thought was so profound. And uh, I don't know if you remember what you wrote, but the question was, have you ever been sexually abused? Oh, my response was that everyone who had to grow up closeted in our culture or in any culture that exists right now was to some extent sexually abused by society, the whole world around us. Um, you know, like made us terrified from birth of all of our sexual inclinations such that nothing could be normal. Nothing could be regular. I had to do such extensive work, with myself to just be able to be calm and comfortable with my basic sexual desires, which are pretty vanilla. Um, and the thing is, is I know that everybody else out there has some degree of shame around sex. Like, you know, you're Catholic or your parents were evangelical or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, or you just have a mom with very terrible senses of boundaries. Um, but there is something different and something distinct about the experience of being gay and we don't talk about that at all. And we don't respect that. It's a thing that needs to be worked through. We all just behave. I mean, cause gays have been fighting 
for civil rights. And we've been trying to tell everybody, no, we're fine and normal. We're fine and normal. Please don't send us to jail. Please don't stop us from emigrating to this country. Like, please don't say that we are mentally ill. But in the process, we have kind of been hiding some of the truth, which is you don't come out of that unscathed. You don't come out of that without some some scars in the way that you understand sexuality in yourself. And, and I imagine how you operate socially. Just out, take sex out of the equation. Right. I mean, and that's a factor that people don't respect enough that they do think about it. Oh, it is just about you having sex. No, it, it is also about every all male group I have ever been in. It, it also impacts the way. I, one, one thing I have said is that being a gay man means you are always in a mixed gender group. You are never not in a mixed gender group. Like when you're with straight guys, you are this weird a- alien thing where you don't understand and play their game. You are potentially sexually attracted to them. They have a right in our society to be offended by you even appreciating their them in any way. When you're with girls, you're a dude and you kind of understand their world. But even when you're with a bunch of gay guys, it is still the thing of like, we are each other's friends, but we are also each other's sexual objects. And, you know, I'm not part of one of those gay friend groups where people are messing around with each other all the time, except on New Year's for some reason. Really? Why? Well, not me, but like two of my random friends will always end up like blowing each other on New Year's and it's like, did you hear what happened? Like, so that's <laughs> a rare exception for uh, my friend group. But Maybe it, they're contrarians and they wanted the balls to go up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that might either be a great joke or a horrible joke. I, I can't decide which one. I enjoyed it. Yep. Uh, they're, they're chasing the bubbly with the frothy. <laughs> Uh, was there something else you wanted to add? No, I mean, it's just pretty much that, that like you're always, that I guess you never get that sort of like comfortable, I am with people who, who are, you know, who are not in any way a sexual game for me. Um, and also we have sort of like this shared cultural framework, except to some extent with like girls. But I mean, even that their bodies and lives are different than mine, you know? And some of them may be attracted to you. Yes. Um, let's do uh, the shame and secret survey. Okay. Um, darkest thoughts. I don't remember at all what I said, Paul. I don't um, either. So you're, oh, you're do you have good. it. Do you have it here? I don't. Oh, okay. I don't. But what are the darkest things that, that you've, you've ever oh, thought so or darkest things? I mean, I'm always scared one time I was handed a baby in a house where my mom was frying chicken. And since then, every time I've held a baby, part of me has been, I'm going to drop this baby in fat and he's going to fry. Um, anytime somebody commits suicide, I'm weirdly happy that they committed suicide and I did not. Um, I, I was not sad enough about my dad dying. Like, I was just not sad enough. Like, it was weird. It was hard. There was one weird moment. There was one weird moment where I was out when I went to go get his nail bags. Um, I was holding them in my hand, and I was, like, being there in this space that I spent so much time in. 
and was like so mixed with like good and, and frightening. And then our dog came along and shoved itself against my leg in a way that was like, cause I don't own a dog here, you know, but like was so nostalgic. And I started to cry and I just, I guess this is an awful moment, but this moment of being like, well, now you have an emotion the way a man is supposed to have an emotion in Yuba City, California. Like now, after 40 years of like, oh, I can't do this. Suddenly you're having an emotion quietly with a dog in like a, in like a workshop while holding nail bags. Like that's <laughs> why couldn't you have been this guy the whole time? Um, and I was so stupidly proud of myself in a way that feels really silly. Um, but I just like, I, sh- I should have been sadder about my dad dying. I, I experienced the same thing when my, when my dad died and my dad and I did not have a, a contentious relationship at all. Yeah. He was checked out emotionally, but I, felt like a terrible person because I didn't cry more. Yeah. Uh, I really, the, the only time I really cried hard, and I think I've shared this on the podcast before, was about a year after he died. And my dad was somebody that was really difficult to talk to unless it was something in his wheelhouse. Yeah. And one of his things was sports. And so it was coming around to the, the uh, March Madness. And I was just about to pick up the, the cell phone to ask him who he thought was was going to be good and i realized i'll never be able to do that again and i just remember i was driving and i just remember i just started crying and that's when i felt because those were the moments that i had with him that was our that was our sitting by the fireplace uh moments that other other people or you know whatever the, the the fond memories that's as fond as it got with my dad there's something so weird about the phone like i i really did like um after i talked with my mom about something sort of like logistical uh, since his death i was like oh i'll just call larry um <laughs> and then it's that weird moment of like it doesn't feel like you can't call them you've always been able to call them you should be able to call them right mm-hmm. it's yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I was I was supposed to be a guy who structures his emotions around things like that. You know, that was what they 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 want all of these coded communications, and I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I just need to talk with them directly, and that terrifies them, um, and they can't do it. I smelled my dad's clothes when I got to his when I got to his house. It was like I guess it was like the closest that I'd be able to physically experience him again, but I remember he had this stack of undershirts. And they, they were clean, but they were still, you know, they it had his his scent and I just remember sniffing them and thinking this is really weird, but it somehow it feels like it's okay. Um my dad his hands were just covered in calluses and he was a cement mason for most of his life. So that's some serious calluses, right? And you also end up getting small cuts that get concrete in them. And then that is a terrible thing. And so his hands were like, 
amazing. Like they were this like physical representation of all of the work that had been done. He built our house. Like he built the house that I grew up in. It is such a sweet, like it is a level of like physical love and affection that like most people would can't dream of, you know? Um, and (laughs) I was always constantly being told how ungrateful I was for that. Um, but just realizing like, I do not get to touch his hands again. Like I do not get to see or touch his hands again. Um, was like, it was, it was terrifying. And and the strange thing is, is that like, um, this is going to, this is going to sound really fucked up, but it's like a really intense version of you ate the last cookie and you forgot it and you go to reach for the cookie and it's gone. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, um, because it, it, he was only 63. Um, this wasn't a thing I thought was going to happen. And also parents are titanic, gigantic people who are allowed to beat you. Like they are gods. And part of everything that's fucked up about me is not being able to, at some point in time, just say like, it is a cafeteria lady and a construction worker who you lived with for a while. Like, um, because I love him so much. Like it is weird that I will never talk to him again, but it is also the very hard business of trying to extract from my brain. The things that they Paul, I intellectually now can say, I understand what they were like. I do to some extent understand what they were doing. They were trying to protect me from myself. (laughs) Like they were, my mom is still trying to protect me from myself. And I imagine from society because they know how mean society. Yes. And my mom, you know, she, she, she has gone to the extent of trying to protect herself that she doesn't, you know, deal with people and barely leaves the house and everything like that. But like, I, I get all of that and can sort of intellectually understand why they spent all of my life trying to stop me from most of the things that I love most, like that the job I have jobs so much less awesome than the job I have seemed impractical to them when I was growing up. Like the notion of me working at a bank felt like a reach. Um, I understand why they tried to like protect me from being gay. Um, but none of that understanding helps. Like it just kind of distances. Like, I mean, I just kind of have had to, take a more clinical approach to my relationship with them because like even now when I'm like trying to figure out things with my mom, I have to sort of like explain what my boundaries are and she'll get like upset or hurt about just about the fact that I'm like bringing them up and stuff. And 
it's like, yeah, you like you, you, you got to know that because she's not going to be able, like you're, you're the only one who's going to be establishing boundaries here. So she's going to do whatever she's going to do, but, but you got to do that or else if you, if you let yourself care completely, she will just, you know, pull you in and not give mm. a shit about any of your thoughts or feelings. This sounds real morose and sad. I, you know, my dad just died. It's, <laughs> I don't think this sounds, hard. I don't think it sounds morose and sad. I think this is the stuff we have to talk about. Cause if we don't, we, you know, we stare at the wall and we can't get out of bed and we feel alone and we feel broken. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but until I started to vomit up my inner life and how low my self-esteem was and the things that brought me pain and frightened me and, and really took off the mask that I'm this glib guy that has it all together, um, I was going to commit suicide. Right. We're all quite addicted to that image of ourselves as being fine. We just want other people to buy it. And one of the nicest things about being a very, very fat person um, is th that is gone. You know, like everybody from the moment they look at you, see one of the worst things about you. Um, and it's a nice place to start from, you know, it's like, there's no, if I looked normal, I might, have more incentive to just try to play the game of being normal. Um, but I am not, I am unusual in so many ways. And if, like, I'm not going to fit in, I'm not going to fit in. Um, and for a long time, I thought it was my job to just be mad at myself for not fitting in. Um, and then I was like, Hey, <laughs> maybe that's an option. Maybe you just do you and like other people are being boring. Why don't you be like fun and have a good time? Um, or just be cripplingly honest, you know? Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the reasons other than the fact that he made great music, but when David Bowie died, there were, there was an outpouring of emotion that I've never seen for another another artist especially right. when you considered yes he he had hits and and he was loved and everything but it was it was he made it he, he was the biggest first version of it's okay to be different right and and not just okay but the raw charisma of being distinct like the raw charisma of you making a choice and having it not really make sense to other people, but having people be really ex like <laughs> excited about the fact that you know what you're doing because yeah. everybody's constantly uncertain about what the propriety of their actions. And there is something so nice about just delving into impropriety mm -hmm. And letting that be the thing that's that's running everything. And and I think we're so jealous of the fact that he took his weirdness and used it to make him special yeah. instead of um, for us. It's terrified that if our weirdness gets discovered, you know, the jig is up and and we're uh, you, you know nobody's going to love us. Yeah, and it's always one of the reasons 
I, I really liked doing this show. And one of the reasons I liked doing the, the, the live show was that thing of not being scared of your weirdness because, you know, I am, I'm built of these two things. I am, I'm built both of the inclination to hate every aspect of myself and the, the raw pleasure of realizing I get to decide what I like or don't like. Um, and you know, it was such a fun, challenging opportunity to just lay my shit out and be fine with it because everybody's got their own shit. And part of us, some cheap part of us is always wanting to gape at another person and say, they're so sad. They're so weird. At least I'm better off than they are. That's the reason I am happy when I find out that people who aren't me have committed suicide. You know, it is that like, like that base silly thing um, but it's not necessarily that it's that specific person. It's just there was a suicide and yes. it wasn't you. Yes. But, I mean, like the best thing. That's why I watch Hitler documentaries. I'm like, I'm a good guy. My life's going great. Right. At least you did not destroy, like, three ethnicities. Yeah. Um, I had... And Bauhaus. <laughs> and you didn't destroy Bauhaus. <laughs> that th- That was a fucking crime. I mean... Berlin in the twenties. There was some shit going on oh there. Oh my god! It was. If I could get in a time machine, um, Berlin in the twenties. Can you imagine how amazing that? And the other thing would be Paris in the forties, listening to Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. Yeah. Um. Uh. I mean, for five years of the uh, years of the forties, terrifying, but also exciting. I mean, yeah. it feels like every fourth person was a spy. Um. Uh. I'm sorry. I had something good I wanted to say, and I forgot what it was. I'm notorious for getting, just killing the, the vibe before somebody has something. These things happen. Um, I'm known as the epiphany crusher. I love a good epiphany. <laughs> uh, Bauhaus, uh, German. Germans. I, I said I like uh, watching uh, the documentaries, and you said they destroyed the three separate ethnicities. Oh, um, oh, thinking you're better than people. It wasn't that great. It was just, um, I had a Shakespeare professor who, like, in analyzing the plays, was just so coldly honest, and not warmly honest, about, like, she taught me that I'm allowed to look any figure in literature and test them against what I know about human beings to always say, is this how a person works? And that in doing that, I get to access all of the things I know about myself, all of the good and bad. And it was such a revelation for me to be reminded that we all have base thoughts. We all have shit ourselves. Um, we have all been sexually attracted to something that we are not supposed to. Um, and we always want to go around laughing at people for these things that have happened to us because we are clinging to this notion of privacy, protecting us from it. And I think it is one of, it was the beginning of me starting to love the freedom of air, dirty laundry of having your stuff be out there and understand other people's families are crazy too. Mm -hmm. Not crazy in the same way as mine, but crazy. Other people hate their bodies. Other people, have had 
you know, rough goes. Not everybody has had a perfect career, like all of those things. And so why should I be scared about talking about the good and bad in my life just because I'm worried about a fundamentally hypocritical judgment from someone else? Like, let's all just be comfortable with these things because they're not, it's not a revelation that they're true. Like that people are base and profound has always been true, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the, and the fear that if, if we expose these things about ourselves, um, we will be abandoned. It's actually the opposite. It's one of the deepest connections I've found to other people is being um, honest about yeah. what's going on emotionally inside me. Yeah. I mean, it's what I do professionally. <laughs> it's yes. what you do professionally. Yeah. Um, let's wrap it up with some... Um, Unless there was anything else that you wanted to uh, share or talk about. It's been a great conversation, as always. Paul I Gilmore. love it. I love talking to you. Yeah. Let's... If, uh, you wanted, if you wanted to make a fun meal by while describing a, a fun 1980s comedy to me, I mean, that would, that's, would be charming, but I understand <laughs> it's no longer your gig. This will suffice? Yes. <laughs> um... In fact, that reminds me of a moment. One of my favorite moments doing dinner in a movie was when we were showing Smokey and the Bandit, and and we <laughs> we uh, the 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 premise for the the sketch was um, was that we were preparing for showing Smokey and the Bandit as if we were thespians warming up. So we were saying Smokey and the Bandit. You know, we were doing the tongue exercises that yes. the, that the actors do before they prepare uh, for something. But I don't know. That just a fond memory. Was this Annabelle? Was this Janet? This was Annabelle, and I don't know if Claude was uh, was on camera for that then. But yeah, we had a lot of fun. Um, Let's let's exchange some some loves. Okay. And the more detailed and personal, uh, the better. Okay. Um. If you think of one, jump in with one. All right. Uh, I went home for my dad's death, which meant that I went home for the beginning of February for the first time in forever. Um, and in February in Yuba City, California, the the almonds are just beginning to blossom. They've just barely blossomed. Like right about now, the the trees are just full of white, but there is mustard everywhere along the ground. There are just beautiful, beautiful mustard yeah. plants everywhere along the ground. And there were, because there's a large uh, Punjabi population there, there were uh, old Punjabi ladies just slowly walking through the mustard, cutting it up um, to make um, <laughs> Sarsan Kasag. Um, and it was like one of the, like an evocative, it was the most evocative memory and a memory I can't have anywhere else. Like it's a memory that happens in, in one place in America for a week. Wow. And I never get to see it anymore. And I got wow. to see it and it made me so happy. What a beautiful I mean, moment. Probably longer than a week, but still. Yeah. <laughs> um... I love when I see guys in their 80s uh and there was a guy there's a guy in his 90s who still plays hockey. Uh -huh. I just I I love when I see somebody who is at an age where they're not supposed to be doing something anymore and they're doing it. Yes. And you can see that it it, it is bringing them so much joy. Okay. Off of that, not supposed to do something and they're doing it. Um 
there are some videos of Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about her early career online. And she is, uh, it is one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, but basically the person asks her about this job that she, um, uh, applied for and didn't get because they had hired another woman and they weren't going to hire two women. Uh, and she says they were like basically trying to say you had things that held you back in your career. And she says, yes, but if I had gotten that job, I would be a retired partner from a law firm right now. Sometimes the impediments that we face can be a great good fortune. And I, I, I love her. I love any bitch who did not take it <laughs> when somebody said, you're not supposed to do that. I love all of those women who fought to be respected and, and taken seriously because their fought fight wasn't just for themselves. It was for me and any other marginalized person, but also that sentiment of these things that are misfortunes are also great good fortunes. They're the things that make us us. They give you the opportunities. That is a thing I love. And you just got to hang in there. You just got to be patient. You got to be get... patient. You got to work hard. Yeah. You got to fight nine yeah. really important women's rights cases in the yeah. 70s. <laughs> I love that uh, you cried during a love-off. That That is... I, we got to end on that because that was just... Uh, that was such a beautiful moment. And... Um, I love talking to you, Guy. I love talking to you, Paul. Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Boy, uh, that might have been my favorite love that uh, anybody's done on the five years of the podcast. Actually, you know what? I think this is our, uh, if not this week, I think next week is our five-year anniversary. God, I can't believe that. Time has flown. Time has left the building. <laughs> um. Before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that uh, there are a couple of different ways. Actually, you know what? Before we even get into that, I want to give some love to uh, our sponsor for this week. Uh, today's sponsor is Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now you can get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash mental and then using the code mental. Uh, listen. The average person spends about a third of their life sleeping. Uh, and, and let's be honest, me and the rest of you listening to this probably spend about two-thirds of our life sleeping on our mattresses. So let's make sure that we're doing it on a good mattress. Casper brings together two comfy technologies for better nights and brighter days, latex foam and memory foam. So they got just the right sink and just the right bounce no matter how you sleep. They got a risk-free trial and return policy. They'll deliver it straight to you. You can try for 100 days, and if you're not happy, they'll pick it back up. That's amazing. And at the store, maybe you'll get a minute to try their mattresses. With Casper, you'll actually get to sleep on it. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, it is an outstanding price point. So, Get 50 bucks towards any mattress purchase by going to Casper.com, and Casper is spelled C-A-S-P-E-R. Go to Casper.com slash mental and use the offer code mental. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to also remind you guys that there's a couple of different ways you can support the podcast. You can go to our website, mentalpod.com. 
You can make a one-time PayPal donation uh, or, my favorite, a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month, and that is what keeps the podcast going. Um, there are always people leaving the podcast, so we always need people um, coming in and uh, helping to support it. Uh, advertising uh, is kind of uh, comes and goes here on the podcast, and we can't really depend on it. Um, so we we uh, we really depend on you uh, doing what you can as far as uh, supporting us financially. You can also, if you're going to shop at Amazon, enter through uh, the search portal on our website. We should now have, uh, thanks to your feedback, a bunch of little Amazon logos on our pages and make it easier for you to access the portal. Uh, so if you're going to shop at Amazon, uh, they give us a little bit of money when you buy something and it doesn't cost you any anymore. Um, you can also support us non-financially by spreading the word through social media and giving us a good rating on iTunes. Uh, both of those things really, uh, really help a lot. Let's get to the surveys. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Tainted Love. And about her OCD, she writes, standing in the shower, scrubbing my skin over and over and over until the water burns my raw flesh, only to get out and brush my teeth until my gums bleed, then do it all again. About her PTSD, listening to the most depressing song you've ever heard on a never-ending loop. Oh, that is a good one. About being a sex crime victim, feels like trying to take a test in a different language while you stand naked in front of the class. Wow, that is heavy. Um, yeah, and um, being a uh, sex abuse survivor is a very, very confusing um, uh, process. Would you call it a process? I guess so. Snapshot from her life, standing in front of the mirror, punching myself until my skin is numb and purple, feeling happy because I finally got what I really deserve, a beating. I hope you're in therapy. I really do because you deserve love. Um... This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sage. She is in her 30s. She is bisexual. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional uh, environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, my uncle molested me and my sister uh, when we were 8 to 11 years old. We were not believed. My mother blamed blames us for not, quote, stopping it at the time which in my opinion is even worse than the abuse that you received. It is a worse betrayal to me, um, but that's just my opinion. They're both horrible, but um, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, I think as a result of reporting my abuse, my mother became convinced that I was a whore. She called me this name often uh, when I was late from school uh, or talked back or did any number of teenage shit. She beat us all our whole lives, as did my father, we also beat each other when frustrated. Um, any positive experiences with your abuser? Uh, I love my mother. My head knows she's toxic, but my heart has no idea. God, that is such a profound statement. That is so profound. Somebody should make a t-shirt. My head knows you're toxic, but my heart has no idea. That That is... Somebody get on that right fucking now. Darkest thoughts. I would like to die, but I'd never plan it. I hope I get cancer. Darkest secrets. I fantasize sometimes about older men and younger women, and this makes me sick. 
Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. She writes, I can't. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to run away from my husband and kid. I want to hitch a ride anywhere. What, if anything, do you wish for to be normal, to need to not need constant validation? Have you shared these things with others? No, I can't verbalize this well. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Sad. I want it to go away. Um, I'm just going to say there are so many support groups that could help you um, with what you've been through. And um, email me. I can suggest some to you or talk to a, a therapist. Sounds like you're probably not in therapy, um, but you are not even remotely alone, sadly, in what you've gone through. Um, but the good news is, is there is help. This is an email that I got from uh, a person called Jay. And they write, uh, just listening to the episode from November 20th of 2015, where you wonder when it's depression and when it's laziness uh, preventing you from doing something. As a lifelong depressed person, I have learned I can distinguish between them. If I don't want to do something onerous, such as work, uh, I substitute, I think that's how you pronounce it, onerous, onerous. Uh, I substitute something lovely, instead engage my response. If I were instead faced with, in that moment, hanging out with all of my favorite people, eating chocolate and playing soccer, would I want to do that right now? If the honest answer is no, it's not laziness, it's depression. That really helped me. Thank you. Thank you for sending that. Um, this is an email I got. Uh, for those of you that listened to last week's episode, um, I started doing a voice at some point in the podcast uh, that I don't know I was like a, a bad morning uh, DJ uh, voice and um, and I got this email um, from uh, Janice and she writes uh, you told me not to email you about the new voice uh, because you already decided that you weren't going to use that voice again I had after I think in the middle of doing the voice I had said and please don't email me about doing this silly voice because I know a hundred of you are going to do it. Uh, she writes, however, you kept it up, irritating me. I promised myself if you continue to use it on future shows, I would close down your podcast on my iPad and not listen again. So I'm letting you know that that voice is, and then this is in caps, irritating. I'll keep this promise. Janice. And, uh, you know, a part of, uh, I know it's. I know I do things on the podcast that that are uh, annoying, and uh, I I can't help them sometimes. And I appreciate your honesty. And uh, bullet Paul sounds like you're really kissing her ass, dude. She, Janice asked you not to come in. All right. I think Janice needs to mellow out a little bit. In fact, I'd like to see her mellow out maybe at the top of the hour with a little Buckman Turner Overdrive. Go fuck yourself, Janice. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Earthship Dweller. She is straight, in her 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And some stuff happened, but she doesn't know if it counts. Uh, I don't want to read the details of it, but uh, basically her and her younger sister um were sexualized and molested by her brother and some of his friends and he was uh he was five years older than them um 
Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Uh, well, the same brother and friends would tease the crap out of me and my younger sister, shooting us with rubber band guns they crafted, holding me down on the front lawn and doing the spitting thing where the big gross loogie would hang out of his mouth and he would suck it back in over and over my face. Turning off the circuit breaker in the house and chasing my sister and I around the house in the dark with a flashlight shining up on his face while he was babysitting us. Any positive experiences with the abusers? And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to read this survey, is I think this captures the complexity of relationships with people who have abused us. Um, she writes, yes, this is what's so fucking confusing. My brother also turned me on to his amazing record collection, The Beatles, Rolling Stones, Black Sabbath, Cat Stevens, etc., and would allow me to freely listen to them whenever I wanted. He taught me how to ride his motorcycle when I was about 12 years old. As teenagers, he took my sister and I camping. This was years after the abuse had ended, and we all sat around the crackling campfire and talked about the universe and God. And and the other thing that was confusing for her, too, I didn't uh, read it um, because I didn't read the details of the abuse, but one of the things that she did say that the abuse was overwhelming, um, disgusting, and exciting, which I think in a nutshell um, kind of sums up how... Um, confusing that can be uh darkest thoughts i have thoughts of killing myself but not in a very long time cheating on my husband but i would never do it darkest secrets well i think i've covered the dark secrets with all the childhood sex stuff i feel really guilty that i didn't protect my younger sister from my older brother and his friends uh, i feel so sad as her quote big sister that i wasn't able to protect and help her from all the fucked up shit life threw at her uh to which i say that's the job of your parents and you are not her parent and you did not fail her. Uh, what best describes the environment you were raised in? Oh, we read that one. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. When my husband and I are really getting hot and turned on together, we fantasize that he's my dad and I'm his teenage daughter. It makes me feel super creeped out. Ew. Um, I, I think as long as you're both into it, that's fucking awesome. Um, it's, it, that's the place to explore that stuff. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my brother that I love him, but he really fucked my sister and me up. Nobody in the family knows about the abuse, and I think they would understand why my younger sister had so many, quote, issues with men, alcohol, drugs, etc., and she wasn't just a fucked up person by accident. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace of mind, not feeling ashamed of my body and sexuality. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, my therapist and my wonderful, supportive husband. They were both really amazing listeners and very kind. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels pretty good, actually. I've been listening to the show for a long time, but have never filled out a survey. It feels cathartic and like I'm stepping up to potentially sharing my secrets with so many uh, amazing, non-judgmental freaks like me who have shared stories that have helped me in my healing. So, and then in parentheses, sounds cheesy but true. I don't think it sounds cheesy in the least. I think it sounds beautiful. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Yes. If weird, confusing sexual stuff happened to you as a kid, don't blame yourself or hold on to shame. Easier said than done. Uh, she has in parentheses because it was not your fault. You were an innocent kid and it may have felt good slash gross slash exciting but it wasn't your fault if you went on to experiment sexually with other kids after being sexualized don't beat yourself up now as a teenager or adult it happens try to walk with someone you trust about uh, try to talk with someone you trust about it love yourself and work it out 
Couldn't agree more. Thank you for sharing that. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself mental in Minnesota and about her depression. She writes, my chronic depression makes me feel like I'm living in someone else's body, using it just to get the daily tasks done, but not being connected to everyday life. Boy, that is a good one. That is a really good one. Thank you for that. This was uh, an awfulsome moment filled out by Oh for the Love of Dog. Uh, and they write, Sitting here listening to your podcast, an episode in your back catalog from probably years ago. I think to myself, boy, I'm so glad I don't have trichotillomania as I absentmindedly rip out my pubic hair. <laughs> Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Solo Player. He is gay. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, He writes, I had a bad experience with a romantic partner. My ex-boyfriend wanted to have sex, and I said no, and we got into a bad argument about my low sex drive. I decided uh, that I was willing to do it for him as a favor, and I was okay with that and the sex was okay. Afterwards, I asked him if he felt better. He told me to go fuck myself and that he perceived it as a hate fuck. It was a weird feeling, as if I had been raped, and I didn't know until after it happened. I felt betrayed, hurt, and afraid of the person I was in love with. I guess I just suppressed my feelings for the sake of the relationship, and we never talked about it. Well, that's a heavy thing to sweep under the rug. Um, He's been emotionally abused. He writes, I just listened to the recent podcast about emotional neglect. He's talking about the episode with uh, Dr. Janice Webb, which everybody should listen to. Um, And he writes, and it describes both my parents, especially my father. Um, uh, The only time my father talked to me was to scold me or humiliate me. I wish my mom had been strong enough uh, to leave him, but she never did. The emotional absence of my father is clearly the root cause of most of my own mental struggles. The neglect was worse than the abuse. I think I developed an unhealthy perfectionism and inability to accept help from others as a result of the combination of my parents' neglect. I often feel alone and that I must be independent and make my own way in the world in order to be healthy and in control. And I think that is one of the biggest myths, especially that our our culture pounds into our minds and especially with men. Um, It is... I was under the spell of that myth for so many years that to be safe was to be financially successful and not need anybody else's help. I mean, emotions weren't even on my radar, um, but that is a recipe. Um, looking looking for control uh, for future safety is a recipe for disaster, and yet we do it every fucking day every day. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, Often I agree with my father when it comes to being practical and responsible in life. I think he has rational ideas sometimes, but expresses them in an abusive way. It makes me feel like he is right and I deserve to feel shame for being a bad son. He tells my mother he is proud of me, but he won't tell me directly. What the fuck is with that? God, I hear that so much. I hear that so much. 
darkest thoughts. Other people tend to see me as an innocent, healthy, emotionally connected person, but there is something inside of me that feels like a dark corruption that nobody else can perceive. I feel this way about my sexual perversions. More so, I feel a sort of callousness towards others. Often when someone tells me a sad story, I get a sick satisfaction from it, and I have to try to stop from laughing. I honestly don't want to feel that way. It might be a form of dissociation, escaping the sadness of the world by focusing on the dark humor of the universe. There are a lot of people who love me, but I don't feel like I love them back, even though they deserve me to. Sometimes I feel like love is just a form of control. I want to connect to people, uh, but relationships feel empty. I have attempted suicide before, and sometimes I think about killing myself when I am under stress. I think vulnerability would be a huge thing for you to work on. Um, you were raised in an environment where not only was it not modeled for you, but it wasn't safe. And um, I can tell you as somebody that went 40, four decades without uh, learning how to be vulnerable, it is a fucking prison. It is a prison. And um, when you discover safe people and you can be vulnerable, it is like getting out of prison. Darkest Secrets. After breaking up with my boyfriend, I immediately started trying to hook up with guys. I ended up having a very high-risk sexual encounter. This happened very recently, and I haven't fully processed it. I can't tell anyone else, and I have to get a secret HIV test now, which is just another level of deception. I feel guilty for having sex so soon after I broke up and shame for hooking up with a total stranger. I don't even know their name. Honestly, I think that the shame I feel doesn't have to do with my own feelings, but how I think others would judge me. My family accepts me for being gay, but this is different. I feel pressure to be a good role model, and this part of myself is off limits. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I know I am fucked up and have daddy issues. I try to have relationships with guys my own age, but it just never works out. I feel, I feel much safer with adult men, maybe because I know a love relationship would be impossible between us, and so at least I know where I stand. I had sex with a much older guy recently, and afterwards uh, we talked late into the night. I think that is the closest I've ever felt to anyone. I knew when I, when I left, it is possible uh, we would never see each see one another again. I want to hold on to that moment forever, where me and some guy engaged in depraved animal, animalistic fucking, and then he decided it was still worth keeping me around to talk to about life for a few hours. Sharing that makes me feel incredibly vulnerable. I guess the underlying theme of my sexual fantasy is acceptance. Uh, Herbert. Come on, buddy. Give me a break. He's got a cone on his head. Um, wh what, if anything, would you like to say to say he would like a treat? That's why. And he did. No. No, buddy. Go lay down. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I don't think I have any regrets or anything I need to say. I would generally like to be more open about my feelings to people, but I don't think they would not want to know the truth. And you couldn't be, I mean this most respectfully, but you couldn't be more wrong. The right people, people that speak the language of emotion and feelings, would love to have you in their life. And that's why I talk about support groups. That's why I found them. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I didn't have to work so hard just to be normal. I wish that taking a chance with my heart didn't hurt so much when it fails. 
Have you shared these things with others? I don't know that I should open up about these things. It's probably best that they stay secrets. I think I've tried to talk about my feelings in an abstract way before. I do get something from the supportive people in my life. They push me to keep going despite my feelings of isolation. I've talked to people about my father's abuse before, but often I only feel comfortable because the abuse they faced was even worse. It does help to talk to them, but I end up feeling like I had it easy because my father didn't beat me. Yeah, it's not a contest. Um, it's about connection. It's all about the connection and the vulnerability and the trust. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Better. It's much easier to talk to strangers about these things. Boy, isn't that the truth? Um, thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Dr. Banana Fart Man. MD. I can't decide if I love that name or I hate that name. I'll get back to you. Uh, about his anxiety, if I stay in my room, I know nothing bad will happen. If I open the door, the chance for misfortune skyrockets. That's a great one. About his sex addiction, they can't reject you for not being their, quote, type if you're just text on a screen. Um, about experiencing a racial or cultural bias, he writes, would it be easier if I was into all the stereotypical bullshit they assumed about me? Uh, and then a snapshot from his life. Uh, look at the digital download price of a movie I really liked and say it's too much. It's not a priority. Look at the price of a cam show and throw all caution, caution to the wind and just hope I'll be able to pay rent on time. I hope, I hope you go get some help for that sex addiction because addictions do not go away uh, on their own. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Henry. He's straight. He is uh, 18. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, never been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, he writes, my father would always talk to me about women in a very inappropriate way, and I would always feel very uncomfortable. Uh, my brother-in-law likes to slap my ass, and I always felt degraded, but have never told him to stop doing it. He's been physically and emotionally abused. My father was an alcoholic, and he would beat me as well as my sisters and mom while he yelled degrading shit at us. The worst time that he beat me was when he was actually sober. He started tickling me, and I fell off his bed and started to cry. I left his room and went to my sister's, but my father dragged me by my hair and ear back to his room and pushed me onto his bed where he started to punch me in the face while calling me a faggot. My mom just watched and did nothing. Holy fuck. God. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My father told me once that I should be happy that he beats the shit out of me and my siblings because it'll give us character and a story to tell. It does complicate things because I feel that I'm a product of that abuse and maybe it happened for a reason. You know what? I'd like to see your father thrown in jail and then somebody tell him through the bars that it'll build his character. Darkest thoughts. When I get angry, I thoroughly plan on killing the person who made me angry. Um, I get a blind rage that's very uncontrollable, and my thoughts get very graphic about how I would beat the shit out of that person. I also think about suicide very often and all the different ways that I could kill myself and how much easier everything would be. 
Um, Darkest Secrets. I was very sexual when I was little, even way before I hit puberty. So on many occasions, I would make sexual advances with male friends. I never really enjoyed it, but I had this very strong sexual urge that I couldn't really get out with girls because I wasn't around them as much. Keep in mind, this was before I knew how to masturbate. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being tied up and someone else fucking my loved one. It makes me sick. Emotionally, it would hurt, but it's almost like my body has a mind of its own. Um, so true, man. That is the nature of so many sexual fantasies. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Um, I would want to tell my dad how I really feel about him and how he destroyed me and my siblings. I would also tell him to go get help because I know he had a rough childhood too. What if anything do you wish for? I wish that I didn't have to deal with the constant nightmares and fear that someone is going to physically and emotionally hurt me. I also wish that I didn't flinch when someone raises their hand around me. I wonder if EMDR would be a good thing for you to check out. I bet it would. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I haven't shared these things because I fear other people's reactions to my fucked up problems and fantasies. Um, you are responding, you are having a normal response, uh, a healthy response, I should say a normal response to an unhealthy childhood. Um, and therapy and support groups could help you um, have healthy responses to what you went through. But... Um, God, the things you described are horrible. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel better because I've never opened up about these particular things. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If someone is going through or has gone through what I have, please remember that you're not alone and reach out to others that you trust. Thank you for that. Sending you some love, Henry. This is an awful moment filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Olive's Birthday Intervention. And she writes, after trying to break up with my emotionally manipulative toxic girlfriend four times, she started faking suicide attempts, telling me that she would kill herself unless I stayed with her. The most awful moment of our relationship was when I had tricked her into being at my house under the guise of celebrating my dog's first birthday, and her mom walked in the door, who I had called into town from California. I loved being able to tell her mom, take care of your daughter, get her out of my house, she's not my problem anymore. And then in parentheses, I still had to get a restraining order, and she slashed my tires, but what can you do? To anybody who heard me read that and thinks that what she did was cruel or insensitive, uh, I would strongly disagree with you. That to me is a badass uh, woman um, uh, drawing boundaries and saying to her ex-girlfriend um, that I, w I will not be manipulated. Um, pe people threatening suicide if you don't give them what they want is uh, that is a an extremely hostile and manipulative act. And um, you can lovingly tell them that they need help, but um, as, you're, as you're walking out the door, that's just my opinion. Again, I'm not a therapist, but uh, I did once cook uh, Peking duck uh, while we showed a, a movie uh, that Jackie Chan was in. So that's got to count for something. This is a uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by Chrissy, and she writes about having uh, borderline personality disorder. 
when the depersonalization hits, it's like my head, once an efficient and elaborate harmony of perfectly mechanized trains and tracks and stations whizzing, whizzing happily to and fro, has been replaced with a heavy and unbalanced sloshy fishbowl, and every train of thought is instead ejected into a swirl of misdirection with nowhere to go until it fades away into nothingness. Why, that was poetic. That was poetic. Thank you for that. This is the same survey filled out by a um, a uh, gender fluid person who refers to themselves as a cunt boy, fuck dick, shit lord, existential nightmare bro. I'm I'm you had me at shit lord. Uh, they are between 16 and 19 and about their depression. It turns out just waiting to be happy doesn't actually make you happy. That, and again, t-shirt. We ought to have a t-shirt bell that we ring when somebody writes something that is uh, t-shirt worthy. Uh, about their cutting. If my body can't be a normal cis guy's body, then I don't want it to be anybody's body. And for people that aren't familiar with the term uh, cis, uh, it means uh, it refers to somebody who was uh, whose gender matches the um, uh, sex that they were assigned at birth. About being transgender, uh, they write, crying with some of the worst despair I've ever felt because the nearest preliminary appointment to begin the process of starting hormones is two months away, and that that's not soon enough for me because every day that ticks by is another day that this filthy estrogen can fester in my body and another day that I'm less likely to get taller, get a more masculine face, get smaller hips and wider shoulders, even when I do start testosterone and knowing that the only thing I can that can release me from this body is death. Snapshot from their life. Having to awkwardly wait for other people to leave the bathroom at school so I can come out of the stall and wash the gross coagulated blood off my fingers from cutting all over my legs with a razor blade. Oh. Sending you a big basket of love. Cunt boy, fuck dick, shit lord, existential nightmare bro. You have got... What if you married somebody uh, whose name was Smith? Then you would be known as cunt boy, fuck dick, shit lord, existential nightmare bro, hyphen Smith. I don't know if that was funny or not, but it made me laugh. Oh, um, two uh, surveys that I was going to read, but uh, I think we're a little heavy on the on the surveys right now. But um, this this one was filled out by uh, a woman who uh, calls herself socially anxious woman, constantly trying to be enough for herself, and she has an issue with vaginismus, and uh, she says we should do an episode on it, and we did do an episode on it, so um, I hope you're listening. Uh, go check out the uh, episode number 41 with Aaron. And then there was an uh, another survey. Um, filled out by a woman who calls herself Sockeye Girl, and I had some, uh, if you're listening to this, email me because I have some support group uh, ideas for you. This is a struggle in a sentence survey. Oh, nice burp. Sorry about that. Um, 
This is filled out by a woman who calls herself not a hot mess, more like just a mess, and about her depression. My depression is slow and creeping, like an invisible steamroller. You can only figure out it's there when it's too late and you are being flattened to the ground. That's a great one. About her anxiety, in public I feel as if I am invisible, but everyone is also constantly staring at me at the same time. It makes sense, right? Question mark. Yeah. I think it does. Kind of similar to that thing where you 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 want to be around people but you also want to be left alone. Snapshot from her life, my conundrum. I feel I need to carve the words do not hope, do not trust. No one will love you in my skin with a blade, but if there is the slightest tiniest chance of being intimate with someone that would that would be really awkward and probably mean they are less likely to end up loving me. No one likes a fucked up girl. Ha ha. Thank you for sharing that. Let's see. This. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Black Iris. And she writes, uh, I've made quite an isolated life for myself at the moment. Most nights I stay home and enjoy the company of my dogs. They are everything to me, and I don't think the few in my life understand just how dear they are. They both sleep on my bed at night, and my older dog, that is just recently starting to be affectionate, laid nose to nose with me one night. She never fell asleep, just stared at me. There was pure love in her eyes. Whenever I would open my eyes and catch her staring at me, she would take her huge paw and bop my nose, still never changing the gaze, never blinking, just staring at me. Herbert's a little jealous. Uh, just staring at me with admiration and acknowledgement of the safety and comfort I provide for her. I There's few things in the world I love more than laying with my dogs and getting to be nose, and no, nose to nose, but Herbert and Ivy really, uh, they don't do it too much. They don't, uh, they're not big nose-to-nose people. And so what I'm saying is, I'm a little jealous of you, and I cast you to hell. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Buzz. He's gay. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment, although he writes stable from my parents' perspective, but I don't think they realize how negatively they've affected me. Uh, he's never been sexually abused, uh, but he has been emotionally abused. Um... He had a, uh, well, let me read it. My best friend slash roommate my junior year of college would constantly emotionally abuse me. We had a tight group of friends who would hang out occasionally, but at least once a month, he would go to parties with everyone else and not invite me. He would laugh at me when I told him I felt left out and encouraged our friends to keep bringing it up around me. He told me I was never going to get any better and that I was abusive because I talked to him about having thoughts of suicide. Whenever I annoyed him, he would punch me, sometimes for very small things. One year on my birthday, he threatened to kill me because I didn't think I would have time to play on his intramural team between classes. When he decided not to live with me, a fact which... I was the last to know. He told me it was because he wanted to, quote, get used to living alone for grad school. That always seemed like a flimsy reason, but when I pressed him on it, he wouldn't say anything else. Then over the summer, during one of our many arguments, he told me the truth. His mother tried, his mother tried to call the university and have me removed from my room because I was gay. When he told me this, I freaked out and called his mother every awful name I could think of. 
not to her face. He defended her, saying that I was too crazy to deal with anymore, and now we don't talk. All of our, quote, mutual friends stopped talking to me as soon as he did, presumably because he told them all I was crazy and abusive. Every time I think about it, my blood boils. Um, I don't, I'm so sorry you experienced that, and I don't know what about that group of friends makes that a tight group of friends, because it sounded just super unsafe and, and, um, very conditional. And that to me isn't a tight group of friends. I mean, you guys might have spent a lot of time around each other, but you deserve better than that. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers? Of course, he was the closest friend I ever had, but he treated me terribly. Most of my happiest memories in college involve him. There's not one day that goes by that I don't miss what our friendship used to be. Um, you know, it doesn't really talk here about what you're uh, relationship was like with your parents, but I would, um, you know, you said it was totally chaotic, um, and they affected you negatively, but nothing specific. Um, you know, just the thought that jumps out to me is that, um, that that might, that might be the, the place to start and, and, uh, you know, going to therapy and, and talking about your relationship with your parents because if you think that that's what you deserve, that he was the closest friend you ever had and he treated you like that, that there's a part of you that believes that that's what you deserve. And uh, that's been ingrained in you probably by your, your childhood. And it's time to process that um, because if you don't, you're, I think you're just going to keep on seeking out people that that replicate what you experienced in childhood because it's familiar. Now again, I'm not a therapist, but I did cook a nice piece of fish and make jokes about Ali Sheedy. Darkest thoughts. I think about killing myself. I think about hurting him. I think about beating his mother up and making her cry, yelling at her until my face turns blue. Darkest secrets. Sexually, I'm a total freak. I have a huge fetish for men's haircuts, and I find myself masturbating to YouTube videos of men getting haircuts more often than watching actual pornography. I feel guilty about it sometimes, but at the end of the day, I'm not hurting anyone. I've recently started uh, taking up ads on Craigslist looking for men who will let me shave their heads for money. As soon as they leave, I masturbate, using only their shorn hair as an aphrodisiac. It makes me feel disgusting sometimes. I just want to be normal. To which I say, I'm not sure there is any normal. I really am not. And you are not, like you said, you're not hurting anybody. Buddy, you know, I say, embrace it. Embrace it. And uh, don't tell yourself mean things about it because everybody everybody has uh, something that they're not crazy, turns them on. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Forcibly shaving a man's head while he sucks my dick. Sharing it makes me realize how bizarre it sounds. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? To be a normal gay man who just likes regular sex. To be attractive enough that I don't have to worry about being lonely anymore. Have you shared these things with others? I've talked about my sexual fantasy with ex-boyfriends before, and they were polite about it, but I could tell uh, they knew how weird it was. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels good to get it all off my chest, but I'm beginning to worry that there's something horribly wrong with me. 
No, I don't think there. I think you have a lot of feelings built up inside you. Um, but God, we all do. We all do. We all deserve a place to go process them and talk about them and to have people that we're safe around and to uh, explore our sexuality in a, in a way that um, is kind to ourselves and uh, respectful of others. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself anonymous. Uh, she just partially filled it out, but she's straight. Uh, she's in her 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused. Uh, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. She writes, not sure. Uh, she writes, I have very bad anxiety attacks and depressive episodes that start suddenly and last days or weeks. My boyfriend of seven years tries really hard to help. He spent years trying to make me see my depression as something other than a personal failing and convinced me to go to a doctor slash therapist and try medication. When I have an anxiety attack or start to fall into depression, he tries to comfort me at first, tells me it's not my fault, wait it out, or do something to distract from it, take deep breaths. But eventually, when I can't pull myself out of it, he gets frustrated. Sometimes he just gets mad and leaves the room. But other times he yells in my face, wrenches my arms or feet if they are tensed up, shakes me or slaps me or throws me on the floor. Since it never happened in any other context, I do not know if it's abusive or not. I understand his anger because I am always mad at myself for the depression and anxiety too. It is absolutely abusive. His... He is, it sounds to me like he is trying to uh, control you. And when he doesn't get the result he wants, um, he lashes out. And that is not a healthy person. And while it's nice that there were times that uh, he was compassionate and does all that stuff, um, he needs to get uh, help. He either needs to let you have your own process or leave the relationship. Um, and uh, I'd go to counseling. I think you guys should both go to counseling. My my hunch is that he uh, is probably uh, codependent. Probably had a parent who was had an addictive personality. Um, any positive experiences with the abuser? Pretty much everything else is positive. I don't know what to think or do. Um, yeah, maybe he had a parent that that was depressed. Or anxious and never did anything about it and he's acting out his anger about that towards you darkest thoughts suicide 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 I think about it all the time even around uh, when I'm doing something happy with people I love I feel very guilty about this I know it would hurt my family but also trying to quote act normal means I am always isolated from everyone I have tried to confess the constant severity of the impulse to my boyfriend and to a therapist I used to see, but I can't bring myself to talk about it honestly. I automatically tone it down so no one will be upset and then feel worse because I am not capable of being helped. Why is it that you think you're not capable of being helped? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but um, I think maybe this might be a time to trust the process and get honest with your therapist. And, um, you know, if your therapist thinks that maybe it would be good for you to do something inpatient, maybe your therapist is right. Um, I don't know. I don't know, but 
I just know that for a lot of people, that turning point in their life came when they stopped trying to control what recovery looked like and started taking the suggestion of qualified people. Um, Darkest Secrets. No one knows that I was a drug addict when I was 20 and 21. I am no longer friends with the people I used with and everyone I'm around now thinks I'm very functional and wholesome and have always had things easy. And that's the, the end of the survey. But thank you for sharing that. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself can't tell anyone about her anxiety. Yes, I'd love to participate in things like a normal 21-year-old, but my crippling anxiety won't let me. And then a snapshot from her life. I sat alone in my room, in my bed, in my pajamas, instead of going on a spring break trip with a group of friends that I actually wanted to go on, but I was scared to leave home and too scared to be alone with other people. Oh. Mm. So sorry you're experiencing that. That sounds really like a prison. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this was filled out by um, a woman who calls herself uh, thwarted and distorted. She's asexual in her 50s, um, and she struggles with chronic underemployment, under-earning, feeling stuck, negative self-talk, feelings of guilt, shame, anxiety, and depression. And what has helped her is being with trusted friends, being of service, exercise, breathing, DBT group, individual psychotherapy, and singing. And uh, what have people said or done that has helped you? Having a therapist to speak with every week is quite helpful. Being told that I'm doing better and being given examples of my improvement allows me to see what I too often cannot. Practicing mindfulness. DBT groups can be agonizing. Personality disorders gather there, but it is a form of aversion therapy that can prove helpful in navigating a world that includes difficult people. Well, that was great. That was great. And I love that you mentioned um, getting feedback about your progress from your therapist. That is one of my favorite things about being in in therapy and in a support group is when someone reminds you how far you've come or you see someone else's progress. And you point it out to them, and you can just see what a difference it makes in their life. This is an email that I got from, uh, we're going to call her Jane. And um, she writes, So I'm straight, but when I was in high school, my senior year, I had a 47-year-old female teacher that was married with two kids come on to me. We had been close for a while and shared some life struggle stories, and long story short, I ended up agreeing to be in a relationship with her. I think I agreed mostly out of pity. She'd been abused her entire life and said she had never been loved, and I didn't want to be another person that let her down. I also just didn't see it as a big deal and felt like it would be more trouble to get out of it than to just accept it, but on the condition it would end when I graduated. That wasn't the case, though. I was 17, almost 18, when it started, and didn't get out of that relationship until the end of my first year of college. College is when I really started to realize how toxic the relationship was, and I became very suicidal. I finally got out of the relationship, but the depression stayed with me. So fast forward to the present. She's 21 years old. I'm depressed with unbearable anxiety and worse, crippling shame and guilt. The biggest problem for me is that I have a hard time blaming anyone but me for what I'm dealing with because I feel like at 17 I should have known better. And even more than that, I specifically told her it was okay and that I was okay. So how can you blame her? Anyway, I've not been able to make much 
much progress because I've been so caught up in this labeling issue. Whose fault was it? Am I a slut? Am I a victim? Etc. And it was getting very debilitating. But then a friend, uh, one of two people uh, that know about this, sent me a link on coping with grief related to sexual abuse. I reluctantly clicked it, but it helped some. So I YouTubed until I found Katie Morton, who I loved so much that I searched for a podcast from her, thus finding you. And in just the small handful of shows I've listened to, I learned the most beneficial lesson I have learned this far. You said to separate the event from your feelings. So I did. I dropped the label questions and stopped wondering what role I played or if God was signing my release papers to Satan and I just focused on how I felt. And I realized that regardless of whether I was a victim of sexual abuse or not, that I feel fucking broken. I feel completely used worthless, stupid, dirty, lonely, angry, doomed, confused, and just like a real fucking idiot, which to any normal person would sound like bad news. But to me, being able to admit and give some validity to my feelings was so astounding. It feels like being stuck at the bottom of this vast pitch black ocean, totally void of life or hope, and then looking up to see a small pinhole of light and realizing that maybe there is an island paradise waiting for me up there. As one of the most bittersweet emails I think I've ever gotten. And and I wrote back to her and I said my thoughts. Uh, number one, you didn't agree to be in a relationship with her. She manipulated you and abused the power imbalance. She abused her duty to protect and guide students. It doesn't matter that you were months away from being, quote, legal. You were mentally coerced. And two, the guilt, confusion, and self-blame are exactly what most of us survivors experience. You are not alone in that. But if you process these emotions with a therapist and or a support group, you will begin to heal. And while we may intellectually arrive at a place where we know it wasn't our fault, I think we need deep, intensive work to stop feeling that we were complicit. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing that. I was talking to myself. <laughs> I like congratulated myself on on every uh, everything that I said. How long? How long would it be until the podcast uh, was just me and one person? who was just so dumb they couldn't understand how to not listen to my podcast. This is a happy moment filled out by, oh, I'm a fan already, a, a trans male who calls himself Lardass. Lardass, I'm getting your, I'm getting your newsletter already. Uh, he writes, I've always been a little overweight, like 30 to 40 pounds above my target weight. So when I was a kid, my dad was always putting me on some diet, taking me to a weight loss clinic, or putting me on some pills. I was never allowed to eat without his permission, and any time I would walk into the kitchen, he would ask what I was doing. One time, I was really hungry, so I snuck into the kitchen to grab a snack when my dad caught me and forbade my eating, telling me I didn't need it because I was too overweight. Depressed, I walked back to my room, only to have my brother burst through the door a couple of minutes later with snacks for us to share. He gave me a hug and told me I wasn't fat and that our dad was just an asshole. He probably doesn't even remember that day, but it meant the absolute world to me. Thank God for big brothers. Oh, love that. 
And then finally, this is another happy moment. This was filled out by um, a woman who calls herself over-the-top efficient. And uh, she writes, I all kinds of noise from uh, Ivy and Herbert. Ivy's doing the uh, running in her sleep right now. Uh, I haven't been diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure uh, that I'm living with hypomania for most of the time and deep depression periodically. So I was sitting today at work and thinking again how it's very obvious that I seem way more active and efficient than others. Others have said I'm too much. I'm a pain in the ass to the lazy ones. Uh, If I am the, quote, normal, then others should be called asleep or barely awake. I'm intense. I'm over the top. I'm overachiever. I'm crazy. But I, I like and enjoy the fruits of it. So as I was sitting here... Thinking how I should best describe my level of activity, the phrase over the top emerged in my mind. But since I'm not from an English-speaking country, I had to double-check if it means what I think it means. I googled it. As I was typing and seeing there are dictionaries that explain every fucking word, expression, or even memorable line lines from song lyrics, slang, etc., it occurred to me, only a person in a crazy fucking mania phase can create this kind of dictionary. Any kind of dictionary with thousands of words and expressions cross-referenced, translated, explained, grouped properly, thousands of them, all languages in this world, and we take it for granted. But I really think there must be a huge percentage of bipolar people in the teams who make these dictionaries. And wow, I came to appreciate how this mental illness, illness must be helping the whole world when these people are at their best and putting their energy into something like that. They could have spent their mania days gluing huge castles out of matches, but they did this. And now, so many connections are made way more easy to make and sustain. I hate when people think only in black and white. Denial of illness is probably worse, but not being able to see that it's not the end of the world uh, to be suffering is also a curse. That is, that is, uh, that is so great. I've, I've heard people before re- refer to their mental illness as their superpower. Um, and it, uh, thank you for that reminder that it's, uh, some mental illnesses do have a, a little silver lining to them. I long for a little stretch of mania, not mania, hypomania. Um, God, I got so much shit done the last time I had hypomania. It was just fantastic. Um, anyway. I hope you guys got a lot out of uh, this episode. I hope you love the interview with Guy as much as I did, his honesty, his humor. Um, I hope you enjoyed the surveys. I hope if you need help, you're getting it. And I hope you remember that you're not alone. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.